He had sent Judah, he meaning uh, Jacob, ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers in my father's household who are in the land of Goshen have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood, be- and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and I have not attained to the days, uh, sorry, yeah, days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, even as we hear your word preached this morning. I ask that you would give us a greater love for your word, that you would write it upon our hearts by your spirit, and that you would fill our mouths with it. Help us to know it and to speak of it to others, that they might know the great hope and power found in the good news of Jesus Christ, in whose whose name we pray. Amen.
I spent every September of my life as a child going back home, well, to my father's home, in Andover, Mass., for a family reunion. My father grew up in Lawrence, but every weekend they would go a couple towns over to, to Andover to the old family farm, and all of his cousins would also go there, and they would hang out every weekend. And so it was as if they were all brothers. They were, they're very tightly knit, even to this day. And so when they all sort of grew up and moved a little bit away, which was not all that far from most of them, they would come every year, the first Sunday after Labor Day, unless, of course, there was rain, and uh, they would bring all their kids, and we would all get together, and there would be this humongous family reunion, and uh, I was sort of of the one of the odd ages. There was one cousin who was sort of my age, and so she and I became sort of like best buds, and it was always good to see her. Everything changed after college. My generation scattered, for the most part, throughout the country. My brothers stayed local, and I, of course, moved on. And so I did not go nearly as frequently as before. And so it's a little different when I go back for the family reunions now. Uh, I'm, I'm so infrequent. And so it was a big thing when I, I came that first year when Jaden was born. You know, we made a special trip just for that because so many of the extended family wanted to see Jaden. And, you know, a couple years I went back in the hopes that I would see my grandmother because I knew that she was not going to live much longer, and it didn't quite work out. But... Here I was in the middle of this big transition in my own life, and all of those the conversations tend to focus on the kids at that point and jobs, that sort of thing. Well, there's a family reunion that takes place, and there's some new people that are brought into this event, and there's a lot of talk about jobs. There's a lot of talk about kids. But on all of this, God is working out his grand purposes of redemption in Christ. The big idea is that I want you to walk away with this, is that Jesus sets us apart for holiness and hospitality. It'll probably take a little while to get there so that you understand why those two themes are found in this text. I want to begin with the end, with the idea that Jesus calls us to sojourn in this world. It's really the end of this text that gives us the broader context for the rest of the text. And in this, I use, yes, I use text far too many times in that. The idea of sojourners, that is one of the words that is repeated in that last section of this. <coughs> but first, there is that very emotional reunion that takes place between Jacob and Joseph. Recall that up until now, just recently, Jacob thought Joseph was dead. So for 23 years, he had not seen his favorite son. He finally learns he indeed is alive and is the ruler over all of Egypt under Pharaoh. And so he goes to Egypt to see his son. He brings his entire household at the request of Joseph that they might live in Egypt to kind of ride out the storm that is the famine. What we see in the text here is that Moses wants us to know is that though they went into Goshen, okay, what does Joseph do? He does not wait for them to come to him. He gets on his chariot. So this is, you know, sort of a sign of his status within Egypt. And he rides out to Goshen. 
And it is there that they have this very emotional reunion. He'd already wept with his brothers with the joy of being reconnected with them. And now, you know, it's odds for us. He fell upon his neck. We think, I don't, I don't, my sick mind thinks vampires. Okay? No. None of that. It's love. It's the joy of being reconnected. The father that he loved is finally before him again. He's seen him again. And all he can do is fall essentially into his father's arms and weep with joy at being reunited with his father. I love that Moses put that in there. I love that he shows a godly man displaying affection and shedding tears because godly men do that. And we need to be reminded sometimes that it, our emotions are not a bad thing. It's okay, in particular instances, I can think of maybe three, okay, when guys can cry. And this is one of them. It is after this that they, they kind of go off to meet with Pharaoh, who's probably in Memphis. That was the capital at the time. So they go from Goshen to Memphis. And when the brothers are presented before Pharaoh, they let him know that they came to sojourn, not to settle permanently in Egypt. It means that they are there to to live temporarily in Egypt. They're not seeing this as, you know, we're moving and we're gonna this is gonna be our new home and we're gonna stay here until whenever. They're seeing this as very temporary. Okay, they're following the rules of the day in terms of, you know, they've met with all of the governmental officials that they've had to meet with so that they're legally within the country. You know, they have a status as sojourners within that land, but sojourners they are. They are not citizens, shall we say, of Egypt. As when Jacob is presented to Pharaoh, that it's everything sort of, it's unusual. It doesn't follow the typical protocol. We see that instead of bowing before Pharaoh, we see that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. He didn't kneel before him. This is, this is a, a, a shift, a change, something unusual. We have to take note of that. We have to recognize from this that Pharaoh only appears to be greater than Jacob. I mean, he's the one who's got the throne. He's the one who has all the attendance. He is the one who has all of the power, it would seem, in Egypt. And yet, if Hebrews 7, 7 is true, which it is, okay, which says that the lesser is blessed by the greater. And so Jacob, in blessing Pharaoh is in reality greater than Pharaoh, even though politically he's inferior to Pharaoh. Because Jacob has the promises of God. He is in a covenant relationship with God, which, think now this, Pharaoh usually thought he was God. Jacob is greater than Pharaoh and blesses him at the beginning and at the end of their meeting together. During that meeting, Pharaoh asked Jacob, how old are you? The Egyptians usually viewed 100 to be an exceedingly old age. And that's when Jacob says, 
130. Most of us would say, really old, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get to be 130, <laughs> personally, unless, well, there are major improvements in, in uh, medicine between now and then. Uh, then I might be able to do that. But I, I have to think of dealing with my sin for 130 years. Dealing with other people's sin for 130 years doesn't sound overly appealing to me. Bring me home, Jesus. That's, that sounds more appealing to me. But he puts it with, with, he puts this within a context of the sojourning, again, that word, sojourning of his father and grandfather. Abraham, 175. Isaac, 180. And so this is part of why he says, few and evil have been the days of my life. He's like, I've only got 130. My grandfather had 45 more years than me, and my father had 50 more years than me because of the faithfulness of God to them. But what strikes me is when he says evil, hard, difficult, have those days been? The, the life of sojourning people, as his whole family has been for generations, is a hard life. But Jacob seems to be a cup half empty guy, not a cup half full guy. Okay? I'm reminded of Ruth. Not Ruth herself, but her mother-in-law, Naomi. When she comes back into Israel, you know, uh, her husband has died. Her two sons have died. She returns to Bethlehem and she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because God has made my life bitter. That sort of reminds me a little bit of Jacob here. Because he's seeing the hardship and in a sense may have lost sight of the goodness of God, which should be very present in his mind because his son, whom he thought was dead, has just been discovered to be alive. Half empty kind of guy. The Israelites were to think of themselves primarily as sojourners. Okay, yes, they've got the promised land. That's going to come. Okay, but they were essentially to view themselves as exiles, strangers, and aliens. And we see this same theme picked up in the New Testament for Christians, that we are called to be, to consider ourselves as exiles, as strangers, and aliens. I think of 1 Peter in particular. We, like the patriarchs, are meant to live our lives as if we are sojourners. That this that we experience now is not our final hope. That there is something better that we are looking forward to. And in the midst of our sojourning, we too will experience the hardness of life and we too will doubt the goodness of God. You've got a couple, you have a, a couple different sentences from Sinclair Ferguson that talks about how the bentness of our heart means that we are prone to doubt the goodness of God. We're suspicious of God, particularly when hardship comes into our life. I'm reminded of the parable of the sower, that there are some 
Seeds that are thrown upon shallow places, and though they might spring up quickly, they have no root. And so when the hardships come, the person falls away from a human perspective. Okay. This morning I'm reading a book by Derek Thomas, and he mentions Ted Turner. Now, all of us, when we think Ted Turner, we probably tend to think, you know, atheist, anti-Christian, uh, you know, not a great kind of guy who has any love for Christ and his people. He grew up in a fairly strict Christian home. There was a point in his life when he was actually considering becoming a missionary. And then something happened. And that something was his sister got sick. And as he prayed that God would heal his sister, he found that God did not answer the prayer the way he wanted it. And his sister died. And that suspicion of the goodness of God bore fruit in his life such that he claims to doubt the existence of God. He walked away from the faith of his youth. Now, Jacob doesn't go that far. Okay, He's still in that relationship, but he he says, we have to come to the place where we, we admit, there's a French phrase that, um, is used, and I can't know, I don't know the French, but life is hard, but God is good. As sojourners, we are easy to stop with the life is hard. But we have to recognize through places like Romans 8 that Christ protects us in the middle of these difficulties. He does not protect us from those difficulties. Following Jesus doesn't mean that you get exempt from disease. It doesn't mean you get exempt from unemployment. It doesn't mean you get exempt from a wayward child. But what it does mean is that Christ is with you in the midst of that. He is present with you. One of the funny, silly cartoons on Facebook right now is playing on the, the um, footprints poem, you know, where it says, there's, there's the times when I walked with you, my child, and you see those lines, that's where I dragged you, okay? He's with us in the midst of difficulty. He has not abandoned us, but sometimes he picks it up, picks us up, and sometimes he just kind of drags us along, so to speak, so that we get to our intended destination. We have to always go back to the centrality of Christ crucified, because that is where we are reminded in the midst of our hardship that God is good, because God did not forsake us in our sin. God did not leave us and abandon us to condemnation, but that is the ultimate sign of God's goodness, His good intention toward us. The death of His Son. That is where His love is most clearly displayed to us. That is where we must go when we are tempted to believe that God is not good. We need to bring our minds back there. This is exactly what the, letter, the author to the letter of the Hebrews does in Hebrews 12. They're tempted to doubt God's goodness, to leave the faith and go back to Judaism. And he says, fix your eyes upon Jesus. 
who went to the cross despite the scorn and the shame, who thought those things nothing. He's pointing them back to Christ and Him crucified that they might remember the goodness of God towards them. And so, Jesus, who had no home in his, during His earthly ministry, calls us to treat this life as a sojourn. Secondly, Jesus sets sojourners apart for holiness. First, He calls us to be sojourners. Now, He sets us apart for a particular reason, and that reason is holiness. Joseph, back to our text, knowing the pride of the Egyptians, prepares his brothers for that meeting with Pharaoh. Okay, He's almost trying to get them to say, don't say shepherds. Okay? You take care of livestock. And, he, and, the, and the, the Hebrew uses a lot of different words to indicate uh, you know, large animals, oxen, cattle. That's the emphasis, but there's also words that indicate the smaller animals, the goats and the sheep. Okay? But he wants them to kind of focus in on this idea of you take care of the livestock. Because he, he then mentions this. Shepherds are an abomination to Egyptians. I remember some Western years ago, I don't know which one it was, probably a bunch of them, but the tension in the movie, the shepherds versus the cattle ranchers. Didn't like each other. I don't know what it is, because I don't raise sheep. So, well, literally. But this was an abomination to the Egyptians. And so, they're to dwell in the land of Goshen where all the pasture land is. There's an idea of the geographic, they're geographically set apart from Egyptian culture, but they're also, because they're, they are now an abomination to the Egyptians because they're shepherds, they're also emotionally set apart from the Egyptians. But we also see that Pharaoh kind of has a good spin on this. If there are any good men, men of special ability among you, then put them in charge of my livestock. The Egyptians often hired foreigners to take care of their livestock because they thought that as essentially beneath them. Which makes sense when you think, that what do they wear? Usually they wore white linen. You work with livestock, it's not going to stay white very long, is it? Okay. So that was beneath them. That was something they, they kind of hired out to other, other cultures to do for them. Okay? And so they're also vocationally kind of set apart. All of this foreshadows the hardship that was to come for Israel in Egypt. For a time, it was good. And for a time, this is when God was putting his blessing upon them, and they're multiplying, and they're becoming this great nation. And in a sense, the land of Goshen was like a big nursery for them to grow from a tribe into a nation to maintain their distinctiveness so that they would not take on the sin and the gods of the Egyptians. God placed them providentially in Goshen to protect them from the temptations of Egypt. But at some point, 
They are going to become a stench in the nostrils of the Egyptians, and that is when the slavery begins. And so this is foreshadowing this. But they're also to live similar to this in Canaan. They were to be separate from the nations that are around them. They're not to take on the practices and the gods of the nations who were around them. They were to be set apart, distinct, different, separate from the peoples who are around them. Leviticus 20, for instance. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Okay, catch what he's saying right there. Their sin is the reason you are dispossessing them. Be careful not to pick up their sin. Verse 24, But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. Skipping over to 26. You shall be, as a result of that, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Okay? He has separated them. He has made them his own. And he says, therefore, you're going to live in this particular way. A new relationship or a relationship with God works its way out into a new lifestyle that does not mimic the nations, but mimics God himself. What happens with our sinful heart sometimes, though, is we make it about the rules. We make it about the separateness instead of about the heart. And we have to recognize that this new relationship is the core to the new lifestyle. It starts all the way in Genesis 17, this does. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And so God's intention for Abram in this covenant was that Abram would learn to walk blamelessly with his God. And he is to instruct his children how to walk blamelessly with their God. We see it manifested in the New Testament as Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 uses the Old Testament to make his point. For he says, For you are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among you and walk, sorry, among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Okay? The new identity. God's people, okay? As, as Paul mentions, the temple, also another identity, temple of the living God, both of these. Therefore, as a result, in other words, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. They are to remember and we are to remember that we are God's treasured possession. 
been made sons and daughters of Him. That we are His people. And therefore, this out of this new identity, we're, be, we're to begin to live a new lifestyle. Again, not in harmony with the nations around us, but in harmony with the character of God as revealed in the Scriptures. Holiness. We don't act holy to become God's people. We act holy because we are God's people. Very different. We understand, uh, my family understands this, and if any of you have been adopted or have adopted, you also understand this. We have two new kids who came from a very different culture with a very different way of doing things, and now we're assimilating them into our culture, our Cavalero way of doing things. Which means that, you know, for instance, Asher can't nap any old time he likes. He's, he was just used to, whenever he's tired, finding someone's nap to lay on and sleep. Now there's an actual time to nap. Now there's an actual time to go to bed at night and a time to wake up at night. He's learning this. And it's not easy for him, and it's not easy for us. There are many things that they're learning that are different from how they've grown up the, the previous two years and five years, respectively. And that's what it is when we become Christians. We learn a whole new way of doing this. Now, for some of us who grew up in the church, hopefully, uh, this is not new to you. I was converted as an adult. Complete gear change. <laughs> it's more difficult. But that is what God is doing. We are set apart initially as God's people by baptism. But discipleship has to take place so that, you know, we're going for the heart. Our separateness has to do sort of with the reality of temptation from outside to sin. But discipleship begins to deal with the internal problem of sin, which makes that stuff out there so appealing to us. In other words, we need to deal through the gospel with the internal issue, the temptations within, the sin issues that plague us. Okay? This, this is begins when they're kids, if, if they're growing up in a family that believes, or after conversion, if there's someone like me. Hear from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay? The Old Covenant, though it was written in stone, was not completely external. It wasn't like, follow these rules, you get in. It's about love to God from the heart. Always has been, always will be. <clears throat> love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. If we love the Lord with our heart, then the law will be on our heart. It will be precious to us because it is his. 
That's the whole point of Psalm 119, which we spent, like, seemed like forever doing as our call to worship. Because you love him, his law is loved by you. It's a reflection of relationship with him. It's not to gain a relationship with him. Okay, so it's on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So whether you're walking, you're lying down, you're rising, you're you're sitting, no matter what you're doing, you're talking about God and His law. That's what he tells the ancient Israelites. Because you love God with your heart, you talk about Him with your mouth to those people that are most important to you so that they also begin to love God with their heart. Discipleship is not just, in, you know, raising children is not just about protecting them from the world. It's also working in their heart with the gospel so that they love God. It's teaching them theology. It's catechizing them. So again, it says diligently teach them diligently, not once in a while. That's difficult as a parent. I know. I have a busy life too. It's difficult to diligently teach your children who God is, what Christ has done, and how to live as a Christian. but we need to instruct our children in biblical truth. We need to aim for the heart. But here's the thing. If, it's, if you don't love it, there's no way you'll ever do it. Meaning this. If you don't love God's Word, which would be a problem if you claim to love God, okay, you're not going to study His Word. And if you don't study His Word, you can't communicate His Word. That makes sense. In order for us to diligently do this, the first part is we must love God ourselves and be taken by His Word. Challenging in some sense. In his book, Richard Phillips talks about it in this kind of four-pronged thing. Read, pray, work, play. So you have the two Ps there, pray and play. In terms of reading, he's talking about reading the Scriptures together. As a family, spending some time each day or most days reading the Scriptures together. Spending time as a family praying together. So you're, you're teaching your children what it means to pray. What, what, how do you pray? They learn this by watching you pray, listening to you pray. They know about your love when you pray for them. And then work together. Involve them in things. Jaden likes to hang out with Amy in the kitchen. Eli likes to hand me tools when I work on things. I'm involving them in, we're involving them in work. And then play. That speaks for itself. But, in the process here, you're, you're, you're correcting behavior as you also seek heart change. 
in them. So, in the gospel, we are set apart from the world and we're called to loving obedience. Third part of this, which I must do quickly, is that gospel hospitality refreshes weary sojourners. We see at the end of, very end of this text that Joseph ends up settling his family in Goshen, the, what is called the best of the land. It was the best place for them to be as well. And later, this will be known as the land of Ramses. Okay, he obeyed Pharaoh's instructions. Joseph did not make an executive decision and stick them there. He also deferred to, in a sense, to Pharaoh. He did not over, overextend or, or go beyond his authority, but remember, Pharaoh told him to put them there. But Joseph did not consider that in and of itself to be all that he was supposed to do for his family. We see that the text says, Joseph provided for them. This word has the idea of sustaining, of supporting, maintaining, nourishing. So he didn't just give them a job, you know, out in Goshen, but he also provided for their tables. And he did this, according, in the text, according to their need, according to the number of children that they had, you know. The larger the family, the more they got, so that they were well taken care of. Joseph refreshed his family after their sojourn and for their their sojourn in Canaan and during their sojourn in Egypt. He didn't give them handouts. They were gainfully employed. But he made sure they had more than they needed. But we might think it's just about Joseph. But we see actually it's God through Joseph who is refreshing and sustaining these weary sojourners. It is the Father ultimately who's providing. The goodness of the Father of God is on display in texts like this, which is part of why we need to be in Scripture a lot so that we're reminded of the goodness of God in the midst of our hardships. Because we see things like this. Okay? Israel had a call to hospitality, to provide for the alien and the stranger as well as the poor. In the New Testament, we see that it is Christ who died to save us from our sin, but who also works in us to sanctify us, but he also works through us through hospitality. That's one of the ways he works through us. Amy and I are really glad that God does that, because right now we're enjoying meals that some of you have provided us to refresh us uh, during this transitional period. And we're grateful for that. It is refreshing. It is good. And those of you who have been recipients of those things in the past, you know how good some of these women can cook. Boy, there's been some good meals. And guys, because I think, I think you cooked, right? Yes, he cooked. It was good. We all liked his chili. Okay. But ultimately, it's Jesus who himself is generous, who makes us generous in sanctification, who makes us hospitable towards those who need refreshment. Let's look at a couple of scriptures here. Romans 12, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Catch that one word, seek. It's, it's active. It's not passive. You're not kind of sitting back and waiting until an opportunity to show hospitality is thrust upon you, but you're actually actively going, 
Who can I refresh? Who can I encourage? Who needs this? Seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's one of those verses that makes my scratch my head, you know. Um, but not just not just to the brothers and sisters of the congregation, but sometimes we show hospitality to people we don't know, and sometimes a lot more is going on than we think is going on. Lastly, First Peter chapter four, beginning in verse eight. Above all. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay, let's pause there. There's a connection through the one another's between these two commands. One way in which we love one another well is through hospitality, but one of the problems that can emerge is the hardness of our hearts towards one another, which is why he says specifically, love covers a multitude of sins. If you're bitter towards somebody, you're not going to show them the hospitality that you ought to show them. Even if it's, or if you're bitter at all, Towards someone else, this other person needs your help and refreshment. Guess what? You're, you're not going to want to do it. You're going to be grumbling about it because there's a problem in your heart due to the bitterness. And so the obstacle to our hospitality often is internal. We resist because of our sinfulness and the sin of other people. But Paul, uh, Peter continues, as each of you received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so he puts this in this idea of stewardship. You have been given grace, now give grace. Be a good steward of that grace. Don't stick it in a jar and bury it in the woods. Give it to somebody. You got grace. You're meant to be a channel for grace, not a storehouse of grace. That's where Peter is going with that. And so we see that the gospel is intended to free us from our greed. It's intended to free us from our selfishness so that we can bestow friendship and compassion upon people who need it. And I'll tell you something. The people out there need it. We live in a disconnected world. People don't even know what friendship is anymore. They think it means agreeing with them on everything. They don't know anything about love. Who's going to show them? The church is supposed to show them. Where we can disagree on matters, but find our unity in Christ Jesus and continue to love each other, even though we sin against each other constantly. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cover it. And so we need to repent of that resistance in our hearts. And we need to begin to pray for the grace to walk in hospitality as one manifestation of love for one another. All right. As Christians, big picture, we are aliens and strangers in this life. But each Sunday, we have an, a family reunion. Do you, you think about it that way? You should. I know. Enid does. Good, Enid. Glad to hear it. Okay, we're reminded of our special identity in Christ, that we are loved by Him, 
okay, that we are adopted as God's children, and that we are also called to live out that identity through our faith in Jesus Christ. But God also refreshes us each Sunday so that we might refresh one another as we encounter the hardships of life. And so I have to, I have to think, are, are we living out this new identity in Christ? Is God shaping our hearts and our lifestyle by His Word? One test of that is hospitality. That's not the only test, but it is a good one. If we aren't welcoming our our new family into our lives, it reveals a breakdown in our understanding or our application of the gospel. If you are holding people at bay all the time, you're not living in accordance with the gospel. If you're not letting people into the weaknesses of your life and allowing them to meet your needs in appropriate ways, you're not living in accordance with the gospel. And for that reason, we need to pray. Father, I think in many ways, um, there's a lot of conviction that probably we experience with a sermon like this because we recognize how prone we are to our individualized, customized little lives. And we struggle, because of our sinful nature, to live out of that new identity, to communicate that new identity to our children or those that we disciple. We struggle at times to refresh others as we have been refreshed. And so I I pray for the work of your Spirit. Because ultimately that is what has to accomplish this. Your Spirit at work applying the Gospel to the hearts and lives of your people that you have treasured, called, redeemed, justified, that they might reflect your glory. So we ask that you would be doing that in Christ's name. Amen.